0: Us. Uh, we're starting a new uh, sermon series this week on family matters. We'll look at kind of some different issues as, as to what the Bible has to say about being a family. And, and this week we're going to start with something kind of a, a little different, a little unique uh, in that way. But we're going to talk about what it means for the Bible to teach us to be a spiritual family. Because I want to talk about something that's uh, it's kind of a new fangled word, but maybe some of you have heard it before. It's called intergenerational ministry. Now I understand that by even saying this word, about half of you have tuned out immediately. But don't worry, it's very simple, we'll talk about it. I think actually, it's kind of a newfangled word, but I think some of the concepts will be pretty familiar when we start talking about it. It's sort of a $12 word that just means across, ministering across generations. Intergenerational, between generations in the ministry, which is just serving and teaching. This word is kind of new because back when when Sunday school or Bible class for different ages started becoming popular as part of meeting on Sunday mornings... Bigger congregations realize, you know, hey, if we, if we break up into different groups, we can, we can specialize our teaching. We can teach stuff that's, that's super geared to the teenagers that's it's directed at the young couples or that uh, classes for old Christians, classes for new Christians, classes for men who want to be elders. And, and specialization is good. I don't want anyone to think I don't like our Bible classes. In fact, I wish we had more. We're always asking for more teachers in, in that regard. But, but many places, especially, like I said, in bigger groups the specialization got so much that it kind of had fractured the church. And so people started saying, well, what if we brought everyone back together like they were before? But what if this time we started intentionally teaching and talking about topics that that provided opportunities for our older crowd to, to bring up things that they had learned, things that were worthwhile, things that might be helpful for our young people. And so they started calling this intergenerational Ministry, But what I'm describing is probably just what many of you grew up calling church. And all of this is probably something we've experienced in our life outside of church, right? Except, again, it wasn't called anything special. It's just called the way it is. If you know how to make a, an amazing casserole, if you know how to change oil in your car, if you know how to change a tire, if you know how to pull a tractor or fix a tractor, you probably know it because your parents taught you. Or because an uncle or an aunt or, or even your grandparents and so they kind of had this information, they knew this, and they passed it on to you. And so what this fancy word, intergenerational ministry, does is it takes these same simple concepts and it brings it kind of alongside Jesus' words from Matthew twelve forty nine, which we might know is where Jesus gestured to his disciples and he said, these are my mother and my brothers. And I want us to see this morning that a foundational part about being a strong growing spiritual family. It is a family where spiritual life lessons are passed on from one generation to the next. Just how in our own in our own biological or nuclear or immediate families, whatever word kind of fits your situation best, but in our own immediate families, we we take what maybe we we thought was helpful from what our parents taught us and we pass it along to our kids. When in that passage from Matthew 12, Jesus shows that he he trusts His spiritual family, that He trusts that spiritual community around Him. And in John 19, Jesus said, Woman, here is your son. As He hung on the cross, He, he trusted His mother to those who were closest to Him. He, he trusted His mother to those who were in His spiritual community. And so He's asking Mary, His mother, and John, His disciple, to, to pour into one another spiritually to build each other up, to encourage one another, to support each other in his absence. And so, of course, Jesus appeared for a time after his resurrection, but he, he ascended to heaven and he would be gone. And so over the next couple weeks, we're going to look over some, some family-specific topics, but I want to keep coming back to, to Matthew twelve forty six. But what I want us to think about this morning is not just the idea of, of being a spiritual family, as Jesus talks about, but specifically a a spiritual family where one generation is teaching the other. And so if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Look at Titus chapter 2. When I was younger, I used to always uh, watch sitcoms. I don't know what kind of TV. I don't really watch TV as much anymore with two kids in the house. But we used to sit around. I used to love some of the family sitcoms. Like uh, Boy Meets World was one we watched a lot. Or even some of the older ones, uh, Step by Step, Full House. I love these like family kind of maybe teen coming of age sitcoms, they might call them. Because I I remember as a young child thinking, man, our family is insane. We've got all sorts of crazy problems. And and then I loved watching these TV shows. I'm like, oh, other people have problems. And then as you get older and you talk to friends, and, you, and as you talk to maybe your friends or your neighbors or other families, you say, wait a second, what is normal? Because none of us are without problems. All of us have crazy stuff going on in our families. But I, I love these shows because at least the good ones, you know, the bad ones maybe not so much, but the good ones, they, they made it seem real. You know, it wasn't cliched, it wasn't forced, it wasn't uh, awkward. But They made it seem, and they kind of addressed these serious issues in really a real way. And one of the things I think... That leads us into the situation we're in now with with, with the world. If you talk to people in the world, a lot of people don't really have a high regard for the Bible. A lot of people in the world, a lot of people outside the church, they don't have a lot of respect for what the Bible teaches. And I think part of that is because when they come to certain topics, and I really think one of them is what the Bible has to say about the family, they say, well, that just doesn't seem real. That just doesn't seem relevant. And if, you, and if you talk to people, you've probably heard these words before. That it, just, it seems outdated. It just doesn't seem like it applies today. It just, I just don't know if that seems real anymore. And so one of the things I want to do over the next couple of weeks, but especially this morning, is, is maybe talk about what the Bible says in a way that will, again, make it seem real. And that we can give weight to what the Bible says, that we can give weight to what God's message for, for us is as His Creator but also that we can demonstrate these things to the world. So they can look at us and they can look at God's Word and maybe begin again to think that, you know what, yes, this, this seems real. And so we're going to talk a little bit this morning about Titus chapter 2. Titus is a very short book, a short letter. It's kind of tucked in between First and Second Timothy and Hebrews near the end of the New Testament. Titus and First and Second Timothy together are sometimes called the, the pastoral epistles, because they focus on being an elder or a, a pastor or a shepherd, which is distinct from the role that, that Titus and, and Timothy had, or Paul and Timothy had as the evangelist or the minister. And they focus on shepherding a congregation, which means they talk about Christian living. They, they talk about sound doctrine, they talk about good leadership. they talk about being a good role model, a good example. And if we look at Titus, Paul opens his letter by, by talking about what elders should be like, what the leaders in the church should be like. And other translations use this same term, presbyter, or bishop, or pastor, overseer. And he provides kind of a contrast. He says, elders should be like this, they should not be like this. And so he lists positive qualities and then maybe some qualities they should not have. And then here in Titus 2, he, be, he, he shifts down and begins talking about the members. He begins talking about the congregation. And in Titus 2, he begins in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not slanderers or addicted to much wine, but teachers of good. And in this way, they can train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, managers of their households, kind, submissive to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be discredited. In the same way, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. In everything, show yourself to be an example by doing good works. In your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and wholesome speech that is above Reproach so that anyone who opposes us will be ashamed to have nothing bad to say about us. When I read this passage and we talk about passages that I think people today would be quick to be dismissive of, there's probably a bunch of little things in this passage that people say, oh, that's just not, that can't be real today. But I want to take a look at what Paul has to say about the church because, because he addressed six groups really in this chapter. And, and the first four are grouped together. The first four are grouped together, older men, older women, younger women, younger men. And his instructions for these first four are connected, which is why he keeps using this term likewise. He says they're, they're relational. They kind of feed off one another. They're in relationship with one another. And he, he separately addresses two other groups that are paired together, bondservants and masters. And, and as we work our way through the text, we will come across a number of issues that, that might kind of take us off the main point a little bit. In instructions for bondservants and masters, maybe the role of men and elders, the, the spiritual role of women in the family. And some of these I'm going to save for our evening discussion uh, because we'll have time to kind of explore some of those other topics. So if, if you're not aware, on Sunday nights, uh, two to three times a month, we have a Bible class kind of after a devotional period, and we offer communion as always. Uh, and so that class allows us to explore some of the topics that take a little bit more time. So as always, I encourage you to come back this evening if you are available but for now, we're going to, this morning we're going to focus mainly on just his instructions for these first four groups. Older men, older women, young women, and younger men. And there's a lot of ways we could break down the demographics of our church, right? We, we, we could go by marital status, talk about the singles or the marrieds or divorced, widowed, etc. We could talk about maturity in the faith, maybe how long you've been a Christian or, or whether you're new to the church. In a small town like Dover, we could talk about maybe the difference between being really from here or being new to the area that kind of distinction. There's a lot of lines we could draw, but Paul, inspired by the Spirit, deems worthy to address these four groups based on gender and age. And he says these four groups, they have distinct roles to play, but they all contribute to the growth and health of a spiritual family, which is why I kind of have this illustration of a pie chart because they're, they're distinct, but they all, he says they all work together to, to play into what makes up a spiritual family. And so we're going to talk about each one of these just for a little bit in turn. He begins in verse 2, that older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, love, and steadfastness. And and if you notice what he lays out, what older men are to be, this is also, it's implied that these are what younger men should be working toward, since since they're commanded to be this way when they're older. And so older men are to be clear-headed. Which just means in control of their minds. The the New American standard uses this word temperate, which carries with it the idea of being control of our emotions. The word says they will be not controlled by alcohol. Which is very similar if we looked at Titus one, the the qualifications for elders being sober minded. In fact, if we looked at Titus verse two, we would see that this overlaps a lot with Titus one. It overlaps a lot with First Timothy three because which makes sense. Right, 1 Timothy three one says to to desire the office of an overseer is an excellent task, is a noble work. And I would argue that when we kind of read these in conjunction, that, that all Christian men should desire to, to fit these qualifications simply because their they're qualities of what Paul says makes a godly man. And in 1 Timothy 6.11, the man of God flees greed and pursues righteousness and godliness. So we, we all ought to, whether you really want to be an elder or not is not really the main point, but he's saying we all ought to... Seek these qualifications because we all ought to pursue godliness. And and the text says that older men are to be worthy of respect. The, The King James says reverent. The ESV and others say dignified. But the NIV says worthy of respect. But I think it's closest to the original meaning. Because the word is not just honored or respected. But the word actually means deserving of or worthy of honor. Or respect, which means they're not going to do things that, that would cause them or the name of Christ to be disrespected. And I, uh, this seems subtle, this seems semantics, but I think this is a super important distinction. Because I've had a lot of teachers or managers, uh, people who, who thought simply because they were older than me or because of their title or position, and maybe you've experienced this before, but because of maybe a title or position they had, they thought, you need to respect me. And so they would say things like, you need to respect me, but their behavior did not do anything to actually warrant that respect. And what Paul says the old men of the church should be like, they're not to be commandeering or in that way, but they're to be, I'm sorry, domineering in that way, but they're to actually be worthy of respect. He says they ought to conduct themselves in a way that they are dignified, respecting. And then self-controlled. Self-controlled is something we'll see comes up in every age group, but it just refers to making prudent decisions. Not given to passions, not given to opinions. They will be mature in judgment and show restraint. And there's three things the text lists that they ought to be sound in. And the idea of sound carries with it the meaning of being healthy. And they're to be healthy in faith, love, and steadfastness. Steadfastness or perseverance. And so he's saying their lives reveal a healthy, sound faith. What they believe is sound and healthy. They have a knowledge of God that is healthy, of his word that is healthy. And they, they don't just know it, but they demonstrate They demonstrate a sound love for God's people and for the lost. And so the older men in the church, they, they love God's people. They are sound in his truth and they, they stand for what's right. They're, they're sound in the faith. They're steadfast. They're immovable in the items of truth. So he shifts gears, and in verse 3 he says, Older women likewise. The requirements are similar, but they're related to to those of the the men. And so he says, along the same lines, Be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. He urges them to act like holy people of God. He says, live in a way that is appropriate for a woman professing godliness, which is very similar, again, to those, those commands for the men to be dignified, to be worthy of respect. And in this verse also, and one thing I really like about verse 3 and 4 is that it, it specifically communicates the idea of being role models. Outwardly in their communities, but also inwardly in the church. And so he says, not only do they make life decisions that reflect godliness, but they're, they don't speak badly of others. They control their tongues. And just like the, the men, women of God are not, uh, it says, slaves or controlled by alcohol. And this verse kind of cracks me up that it specifically directs it to, to this group because I, there's kind of this joke or uh, stereotype, and you will, of I think of today of the, the suburban mom who sits around gossips and drinking wine. And so I wonder if maybe the Greek ladies of Paul's time were kind of given to the same vices because he says not to be gossipers or slaves to much wine. Very interesting commentator pointed out that he said, I think, I think each of these groups are given something that they're probably struggling with. He said he doesn't tell the old men to be hard workers and get up early, right? Most old men probably don't need to be told to be hard workers or get up early. But he says to be self-controlled. So to have knowledge, but to have knowledge and love. And he says to the older women, Don't be slanderers. Don't be given to wine. And so we think of sort of that stereotype, Paul's, Paul's instructions are really just don't be like the world in that way. Be distinct. And again, he, he makes explicit what is sort of implied with the younger and older men, that older women ought to be teachers of the younger women. And so there's somewhat of a hierarchy, and not one out of compulsion or out of coercion, but he, but he says they're to show them what is good through the words, through their actions, when we talk about the role of godly women in the church, I think we can get really caught up into what they do not do. And so it sounds like what we want to do is push the women off to the side and say, don't do anything, stand over there. But really the church has actually a lot of instructions. God's word has a lot of instructions for what they are to do. And one of them is to, to be role models for younger women. To, to train them in the things they ought to know. And so this, this role modeling, this passing on of knowledge from one generation to the next is, is actually God's instruction. God says this is the model for a healthy growing church. This is the way it should be. And I think in the church we have a tendency to, to, to cluster in age groups. And again, I think there's strong, strong value in that. There's problems that afflict young people in middle school and high school that, that, that people who are maybe 65 don't deal with. There's problems that affect young singles that if you're married and kids, you don't deal with. And so I think there's benefit to that. But Paul says it's good to, to mix it up sometimes. He says it's good to, to connect across age groups. He says it's good to, to have role models, to have those, those discipling relationships. And, and don't worry, I'm not about to start showing up on Tuesday night or Tuesday afternoons in our ladies' Bible study. But I just want to point out that he, that he calls us to come together and to encourage our men and women to, to have mentors who are older than them or younger than them, to have someone they're discipling, to have friendships that, that cross age gaps. And so we should desire those connections and those friendships with people in the church. And the, the exact nature of what this looks like might be different in different congregations. Maybe it's a, a certain kind of class or maybe it's certain specific days. or Maybe it's just getting together casually outside of, of worship. But but understand that whatever form that takes, building these relationships is part of God's instruction for a healthy, growing church. And so that's what he has to say about the older Women and he moves on to the younger women. And don't worry, I won't be telling anyone what category they're part of. I'll let you decide the, whether you're in the verse three or verse four, whether you're older men or the younger men, but he says to you they should be trained by the older women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And so the older women should be exemplifying what they're teaching the younger women. And he says the young women first and foremost love their husbands and their children. Again, if I think about commands that people need to hear at different age groups, if you ever have spent very much time with an older couple, in my experience, they're one of two things. They're inexplicably still madly in love with each other, or they've just kind of have learned to tolerate one another. (laughs) And again, I'll let you decide which one of those labels apply to your relationship, but if you ever spend time with an old couple, you don't really get that age without figuring out one way or another how you're going to put up with each other. And so he says, young women need to learn this. you got to figure it out. Which I think is probably very related to the fact that young women put up with young men. And so he encourages them, probably because it's hard, to love their husbands, love their children. I think at times in the church I've heard this passage taught as serve their husbands and their children. And I don't want to get too off in the weeds on this. But I do want to say that that what exactly loving your husband and your children looks like in your family might be different than what it looks like in somebody else's family. And it should be no surprise to us, just as men are called to be godly spiritual leaders, that that, that it says a woman's highest obligation, aside from to God, is to her family. But since we're talking about this, there's a word in verse 5 that has been translated a few different ways. It is okoiros. It's compound word that means keepers of the home. And it gets translated a lot of different ways in different uh, translations. Some say keepers or workers at home. Some say the manager of the household. We're going to talk about that. That's one of those things we're going to talk about a little bit more tonight. About what exactly the the, the Paul and the Greek Roman churches he was writing to understood by this word. And and what it means to us tonight. And it's a discussion that will take some time. But I will say this. This is not a biblical command for stay-at-home moms. Much like what we said about verse 4, how this dynamic plays out in your family might be different than how it plays out in somebody else's family. And I just want to kind of clarify that one of those ways is not more godly or more righteous than another. And again, we'll, we'll reserve the rest of that conversation for this evening. But he says, older women are to teach the younger women to be pure kind, and obedient, so that the word is not maligned or blasphemed. He connects that very strongly to that reason. And this has an incredibly important context in the Cretan church. Uh, The Cretan church is where Titus was, who Paul is kind of indirectly writing to. He's writing to Titus as the leader of that church. And this church was very new and in a very pagan area, as many of the Greek and Roman churches were. And so as the church was still growing, there are many families from divided households. And one spouse was a Christian, and one spouse was still pagan. Now, just the way society worked, if the husband became a Christian, usually the whole family became Christian. But oftentimes, the wife would become a Christian, and the husband would remain pagan. And so there are many instances where you you have these houses that are divided, at least in their spiritual goals. And so Paul's instructions here are very similar to his instructions in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, Do not let your call to Christ tear apart your family, This is actually be loyal to God and be loyal to your family. And it's for a reason. He says because your example is of extreme importance. And I think this is kind of the key takeaway for maybe those of our church who are in similar situations. But it's that how you treat your spouse, if your spouse is not on the same page you are spiritually, can really have a direct influence on a direct correlation to how much influence you have with them. And he says, if you let this tear apart your family, you're really never going to win them over. But he says, if you handle this in a godly way, you can really impact whether or not they obey the gospel. And so again, we'll talk about that a little bit more tonight. But he says, their conduct is to be pure. They are to betray the holiness of God. And the older women are to teach the younger women to be kind. And so the young women are to have a special kindness in their role in the families and in the church. And then in the last couple verses that we'll look at, Paul turns his attention to the younger men. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Verse 7 and 8, Paul actually directs explicitly to Titus. He directs him to Titus as the the, the minister or evangelist or the the kind of the spiritual leader of that new community. But verse 6 is actually the only line he directs generally to young Christian men. It's the same instruction that is in one way or another in every group, and it's the only instruction he gives to young men to be self-controlled. And now, you'll notice when I was speaking about the instructions for young women, I was a little hesitant, maybe a little slow. That's probably, that's really because I I never have been, nor will I be a young woman. But I can speak very obviously um, with his instructions for young men, because I can tell you, for very, very high level of confidence, the kind of things young men struggle with. And he only gives him one instruction. He says, if I list too many things, you're going to forget them. He says, I'm going to do one thing, and I want you to take it to deep, deep heart. Be self-controlled. When I think about this, I think perhaps the young men of Paul's time were very much like the young men of ours, where most of the problems and most of the issues and most of the trouble you can get in are going to stem from a lack of self-control. Dealt with this as a teenager, as a a young man. But if we just think about it, if we think about all of maybe the the, the sins and the vices and the things that we see young men tend to get into, whether you're dealing with anger, you're battling lust and temptation in that way, jealousy of other people, greed, you're you're focused on greed and materialism, maybe you're given to to drunkenness, tardiness, laziness, gluttony. All of these are vices that grow out of a lack of self-control. And I would argue that it is discipline in this way and not just age that really distinguishes the younger boys from the older men. That a man has learned to be self-controlled. And just in my own life, when I, when I think about this, I think how much has changed just in the last five or so years of my own life. In fact, I was recently talking to Priscilla because I was talking to my brother and he, he's thinking about getting married in the next year or so. And he says, well, maybe you know we'll get engaged and the next year we'll get married and the year after that we'll start having kids. And I'm just like, oh my goodness, Ben, no, you are insane. My brother's four, years, four and a half years younger than me. And I said, you're way too young to be doing that. I said, no, trust me. I said, my, your mind and your attitude and your maturity is going to change so much in the next few years. It's just way too soon. And so I'm relaying this conversation to my wife and she starts giving me this very puzzled look. And she said, well, honey... Luke is two. So we got married three years ago. Or so he, we were pregnant three years ago, and we got married four years ago. Your brother is going to be the same age you were when we started having thinking about kids. And it kind of I was like, oh man, she's right. <laughs> but there's a lot of maturing that can happen in a very short span of time as you kind of work your way from being a young man to an older man. And a lot of that maturing is gonna come in the area of self control. Maybe you get it before you have kids. Maybe having kids makes you get self-control. I don't know. I haven't figured that one out yet. But I would say self-control is one of the most defining features of maturity in young Christian men. And so he says, focus all of your spiritual efforts on being more self-controlled. Paul talks about Titus 2. He talks about the future of the church. And he's saying, you know, how do we get there? How do we build the future? How do we ensure our children have a good spiritual future? And a big part of it is this $12 word, intergenerational ministry, which is just a church where the lessons of faith are passed on from one generation to the next. And so what Paul is saying is whether you're old or you're young, whether you're a woman or a man, no matter where you are on this pie chart, the church needs you. And he says you actually have an incredibly important role to play. Because building the future of the church takes all of us working together. Just one last thought as we begin to close. As parents, I believe it's a universal desire for our kids to have a better life than we did. It's why you try and teach them the things you've learned through your mistakes, even though they never listen. It's why you save and you work hard and you try and provide for them when you can. You try and help them when you can. You, You want them to be smarter, to be more mature. You want them to grow. You want them to be more successful. You want their life to be easier than yours was. And so I would ask, just when we think about building a better future, do we think about the spiritual future of our children? Do we think about what the church will look like in 20 years? And and usually when we talk about the church, we're talking about universal Christians, everybody everywhere. But I I really want us to think about what is the Dover Church of Christ going to look like when your kids are grown? What is the spiritual environment you'll be leaving them to? And what are we doing now to build to that? Are the people you trust with their development. Are the people you trust their spiritual growth to. Becoming a spiritually healthy family takes all of us. All of us working together as one body. In Ephesians 4.4 4, Paul says there is one body, one spirit. Just